There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. I'm Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasies and the faculty that change our lives. This week on Here at Haas, we are joined by Professor Gregory LeBlanc, lecturer and distinguished teaching fellow at Haas, and also now a podcast host. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Paulina. Podcaster to podcaster. <laughs> I love it. And this is actually a behind the scenes look, but this is the second time. This is take two on our interview. So fingers crossed this one actually makes it. <laughs> I know. Well, now we're experienced podcasters, so we know what we're doing. Exactly, exactly. With professors, it's always just so interesting for our listeners, both current and future Hossies, to learn about your path before Hoss. So we'd love for you to start at the top, wherever the top is for you, and tell us about yourself and how how you found yourself teaching at Haas. Well, do I, do I start when my ancestors came to America or do I? <laughs> where do how I much start? time do you got? That's right. Well, you know, when I, I've wanted to be a teacher since as long as, as long as I can remember. I went to Montessori school and in Montessori school, you spend half your time learning and half your time teaching, right? It's, a, it's really a peer learning environment where the teachers don't do very much. And so I felt like I had the ability to communicate things after I'd learned them. I've been doing that my whole life. And when I was an undergraduate, I couldn't figure out what to study. So I wound up studying like a dozen different topics. And then when I got to graduate school, I had a similar difficulty uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to study. So I wound up studying like a dozen different topics. And somehow, just circuitously, I wound up teaching business of all things, partially because that's where the demand was, but partially because I think in business, you can really cover so many aspects of the human experience, right? Yes, of course, you spend a lot of time doing things like discounted cash flows and p-values and so forth, but really you have the freedom to, to think about people think and how people act and how people behave and what's right and wrong and what's effective and what's ineffective. And how I actually wound up at Haas is totally fortuitous because I was teaching at University of Virginia and I was in the economics department. I wanted to be in the law school. That's where the kind of heavy lifting was being done at, at UVA, and I was happy there in Charlottesville. And so I decided I needed to do a little bit of extra academic stuff. So I did some other stuff and then came to Berkeley as a law student for a year to get an LLM. And while I was here, I wanted to pay the bills, so I was a GSI. I got the GSI of the Year Award and was in the right place at the right time, and next thing I'm teaching at Haas. So... I, I came over with a suitcase and, and sooner or later had to send the moving van over to Virginia to pick up all my stuff. And that was it. What class were you a GSI for? <laughs> well, for a couple, actually. <laughs> and mm. I did as many as they would let me for MBA finance and MBA marketing, behavioral finance. I did some over in the engineering school. And then the first class I taught was actually accounting for derivatives, right? So in the Summer wow. after my LLM, they, they needed somebody to teach accounting for derivatives. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I didn't know anything about accounting for derivatives. <laughs> I was like, hey, that's, my, that's how usually how I operate. I'll teach, I'll say yes to anything and then figure it out. And, that's, and I think that's what the MBA spirit's all about. It's, it's like, heck yeah, I can do that. You want to you send a rocket to Mars? Well, why the hell not? Sure, I'll do it. Okay, now let's, <laughs> what, physics? Do I got to learn some physics? They could tell you make that. it. That's, that's the MBA way, right? 
I feel like one theme I see across undergrad, graduate, and then even talking to you through our class and now, it feels like you have this insatiable curiosity about so many different topics. Do you know where that comes from? I don't know. Maybe I have attention deficit disorder. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know. But, but yeah, I mean, I think like question the status quo student always, when these, these things were formulated over a decade ago, I was happy to participate in that process because I really do think that those are virtues in a way. It's not just describing how people are at a place like Berkeley, but it, I see these as sort of normative principles for, for living. I think that curiosity is, is a natural human instinct, which is it's almost exterminated as you get older. Mm -hmm. I, I just did a, um, a podcast with a guy who wrote a book called Beginners. And it was all about how he, in midlife, decided he wanted to learn how to play chess. And then he wanted to learn how to surf. And he wanted to learn how to juggle. Mm. And, and he walked through all these things. And part of the book is describing how we forget how to learn. And as we get older, we become routinized and so forth. And I think I've just been fighting that specialization, fighting that urge to rinse, wash, repeat for my entire life. And the name of my podcast is called, it's called Unsiloed. Precisely because I, I'm a big believer in the, the generalist. I think that we need specialists, but we also need generalists. And the specialists are the ones that are given kind of more status and prestige, but the, the generalists are often the ones that make the discoveries. Steve Jobs was not a coder. I mean, he was a graphic design major, a dropout. Elon Musk was, was not a, well, he was a physicist, physics guy, but he was not certainly a PhD level anything. Edison was one of these guys that, that just sort of it was a connector. I, I interviewed another guy from my podcast named Michael Arena who studies the psychology of the workplace, and he talks about connectors and how important they are for the creative process. So I, I think MBAs, it's, I love teaching MBAs because what MBAs are, what they want to be is they want to be like generalists. They want to be the PhDs in common sense. They, they want to be the, <laughs> the integrators. They want to be the people who have the experts working for them, right? So that they can translate that expertise into something useful and, and, and practical. So yeah, I think you have to have curiosity if mm -hmm. you're going to be that type of person. And what that means is that you're always asking questions and sometimes you're annoying people because you're like, well, you know, when you're a kid and you go to your parent and you're like, why, dad, why, mom, why? And yes. at some point, parents are just like, shut up. We're tired of that. But <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a mom that would never, ever, ever, ever say that. She would just make up answers. <laughs> you know, like just make stuff up and, and, and mm -hmm. force me to think, well, wait, does that really make sense? I mean, she was Irish. <laughs> so she was you know, full of Blarney and, and I inherited a little bit of that. So I sometimes make stuff up, but only with good intentions. <laughs> I love that. And I know you've been interviewing a lot of guests this year for your podcast. The standard question people always want to ask is what's been your favorite, but that's not fair. So what I'll ask is which one of your interviews or which one of your guests have been the most eye-opening or the most surprising to you? Well, it's always the last one, really. So the one <laughs> I did just uh, an hour ago was a guy named Charles Spence, and he wrote a book called Sense Hacking. And mm -hmm. it was all about how the science of, of sense has so many insights into uh, what makes us buy things, what makes us go to sleep. I mean, some of the fun facts, like if you 
if you give someone a good meal after surgery, it increases the likelihood that they live. If a, if a surgeon mm. listens to music that they like, the, then the recovery time of the patient is faster. That You're more likely to buy a car if you like the sound of the door closing. You think the coffee tastes better when the coffee grinder makes it like a, a, a better noise. I mean, just incredible stuff. And I don't even think the authors of these books realize how how fascinating their work is because they're just <laughs> living it every day. And you're just like, what? Right. Are you kidding me? That is just so cool, right? So it's I like being the, the little kid in the intellectual candy shop when I, when I read these books. And so do you provide due diligence for yourself? Do you read each book before each time you have the author on? I'm reading the books, but I tell you, it's a tight wire act. I mean, mm-hmm. for instance, I'd read a previous book book by this author before called uh, Gastrophysics. And I was, I, when I contacted him, I said, hey, I want to interview you about gastrophysics. And then I Amazoned him and I realized, oh, crap, there's like another book out. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I got to read that one. But of course, I started it last night at around 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And, and so I hadn't had to finish it by 9 a.m. So I, I back in you know the olden days, I used to read a book a day pretty religiously and then life hit and traveling around the world and doing consulting and all that kind of stuff and teaching nine classes a semester, just all that stuff got in the way. And then when COVID hit, it's like, in a way, I was, you know, there's good thing, good lining and everything. And it's like, wow, okay, I can go back to reading a book a day, two books a day, sometimes three books a day because I'm not traveling to Russia or to China or to Colombia or, or France or anything like that. What's your preferred medium of reading? Just straight up paperbacks and hardcovers or Kindle or anything oh, digital? There's certain things. That, I mean, I'm, I'm, I teach digital transformation. I teach data science. I teach future of work. I'm a historian originally by training. And so I still like to have a foot in the, in, in the past. I don't do molecular gastronomy, even though I, I cook every <laughs> night, but I don't use do molecular mm-hmm. gastronomy. I just have a gas stove. Of course, I'm on my phone all the time, but I don't use Kindle. I still have books. I have storage lockers of books. My house, I got to step over piles of books. It's, it's, it's really, and when I travel, I'll go somewhere for two weeks and I'll bring 25 books and like two pairs of underwear and I have to wash them <laughs> out in the sink. Priorities. <laughs> so when you were younger, were you encouraged a lot to read or is your whole family a bunch of readers? My parents were readers. So I had a lot of books around the house. We had a library in the house I grew up in. And so as a kid, my fantasy, I said, when I grow up, I'm going to have a, a big library, you know, with an oriental rug and and, and, mm-hmm. and one of those gl- big globes and a grandfather clock and, and built-in bookshelves and the whole deal. Yes. I mean, I love libraries. I used to have the Penn Library, the Duke Library, the Yale Library, the, the Berkeley Library, International House Library. I used to spend a lot of time in my first year. Haas Library, Law Library. And I do miss going to the library, the, the university libraries where you have the big de- New York Public Library I used to spend time in and has the big space and the desks and the little green lamps. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that being able to read requires, it's, it's like deep work, deep thinking. And it's something that's very hard to do in the modern world because as long as this little thing is sitting there, you're, you're, always, you're always drawn to it. And so it becomes difficult to immerse yourself in that kind of, uh, narrative, and, and we all do short form posts and uh, little squiblets of information, and even academics. Academics primarily focus on kind of journal articles, and so I wanted to, in this podcast, I wanted to just you have to write books for the most part. Like mm-hmm. you can be the world's greatest academic, and if all you've written is journal articles, it's going to be tough to get on the on the show because I really wanted to highlight people who are writing books for for the general public. 
that, that are accessible. Because I think that there's a percentage of the population that's just generally intelligent, well-educated, and curious. And what they really wish they had time to do is just read more books. And so those are, those are the people I want to target. I think that's great. And I think that's so true. Even in the pandemic, you always hear people saying, I wish I had more time to read. But when you ask people what they've been doing in the pandemic, it's typically like binging TV, which Mm -hmm. no judgment, but it's just funny. Like the things that that we say we, yeah, exactly. We all have done it. The things that we say we want to do versus our actual actions sometimes conflict, but it is true. Like I think most people I talk to are just like, man, I just wish I had more time dedicated towards reading because you're right. Sometimes I sit down, I'm like, okay, I have 10 minutes. I'm going to read. And it's by the time I've sunk in Mm -hmm. and started being in that world, time's up. You got to move to the next thing. And to your point, you never get into that deep work of reading and like actually understanding. And then the next step is like starting to make those additional connections to other materials that you've read. Yeah. I think one of the themes that I have in, in, the, in the podcast is this idea of how do you want to live, right? So I have a lot of podcasts on business strategy and, and, you know, financial markets and stuff like that. But another theme I really am interested in is yeah, like, how do you live? I mean, this is, this is, this goes back to the ancient Greeks, right? Like it's the most fundamental question. And are you living the way you want to live or are you just living moment to moment without a, without a plan? And are you making your decisions consciously or are you making them unconsciously? And how do you bring those decisions out into the surface and, uh, and evaluate them in, in a responsible way? And uh, I think for most of us, when we audit our time, we're, we're not always happy with what we see. So, oh my God, I spent four hours yesterday on social media. Wait, that wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't decide to do that. I just was manipulated into that by, by Facebook <laughs> or whatever. Right. And, and in this book that I just was talking to the guy, he says, well, the type of music that they have in, in playing in the store can determine how much time you mm-hmm. spend in the store and how much you buy. And so my thing is, I'm going to decide what I want to buy before I go in the store. I'm not mm-hmm. comfortable just being at the mercy of whatever manipulatory cues are, are, are being thrown at me. I'm going to go, if I go to the casino, I'm going to decide, all right, I got $40 and I'm going to lose $40 and that's it. I don't care what the oxygen level is. I don't care like how friendly the person behind the counter is. I'm just going to, that's how much I'm going to lose. And you mentioned earlier a lot of consulting work that you've done. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say that the consulting that I do is not typical consulting. Like I don't do these long form engagements that you, know, you do if you're at McKinsey or whatever. A lot of what I do is is a company will have a group of executives and they'll say, hey, we, we need these executives to learn more about this or we need to solve some problem. So a large, for instance, like a, a, a large Asian tech company came and said, hey, we have our, our data group is a new P&L. How do they monetize this data? Can you help them figure this out? So I'll f- do a little work on figure out what they're all about. And then I'll orchestrate a maybe like a, a, a week-long immersion experience for them in Silicon Valley where they'll you know meet someone from Salesforce and meet someone from, uh, from, from Facebook and somebody from Amazon. Or, but usually it's targeted at their specific industry and it'll just mm-hmm. provoke some thinking. And then at the end, they'll come up with a plan. And, and I found that telling people what the solution is, is not very helpful because, <laughs> but if they figure out the solution on their own with a little coaching and a little guidance and, and through a curated experience, then it tends to get adopted and it tends to stick. So, so that's, I do a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and then a lot of startups, I, I love talking to startups 
but I'm not the kind of person that's that's going to necessarily give them daily consulting. It's, hey, you guys are thinking about it this way. Maybe you should think about it this way and then and then step out of the way. And Because, again, I don't have the attention span to to do like a six-month immersion consulting in Omaha on some meatpacking <laughs> plant. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> That's not for me. Mm-hmm. You've also taught at a lot of different schools. I'm curious to understand cultures at the different schools you've taught at and how Haas compares or anything that you've learned in your experience. Well, there's a lot of variables because a lot of places I taught were in the past, so it's hard to compare apples to apples. But I think most professors at most business schools would be very envious of of the teaching experience that people get at, at Haas because the students are they're curious they're ambitious, but they're not narrowly ambitious, right? They're not just like, okay, I'm just going to make as much money as I can. They're like, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something interesting. I want to do something that's collaborative. I want to do something that's creative. But they have very high standards for themselves and, and, and for others. And so that's why it's a joy to teach for uh, Haas students. I mean, Haas students will, are also very, very willing to give feedback and willing to help us instructors to improve our our game and our our craft and and that's why I really am, am grateful. I learn so much from students. I, I tell you, when I do like final projects at the end of a semester of strategy, and the students mm-hmm. get up there and they and they start. I mean, it's like being a parent and you see your kids at the audition and you're like, oh my god, look at them out there playing the violin. It's so cool. Uh, I mean, it's it's just a wonderful experience. Not only because you're proud of them, but also because you, know, you learn so much. I mean, if I turn around and I say, oh, well, cloud computing, blah, blah, blah. It's, well, where did I learn that? Well, I learned that in part from the students have given me some insight there, not the entirety of the insight. I have my frameworks. They give me some, let me know what's happening in that space. Then I have to go out and do some more research to flesh it out. But it's an iterative process. What I learned from one batch of students helps me to provide good insight to other groups of students. So if I was independently wealthy, I would be I'd pay to teach at Haas, really. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, it's not, it's already, there's a huge opportunity cost that, that all of us pay when we teach at Haas, because most of us could be earning more elsewhere. But, mm-hmm. but I'm just saying, heck, this is something that outsiders should just beg to want to do, because it's such a, uh, it's such an enjoyable experience. Of all the classes that you teach, do you have one that is your favorite to teach or that you feel like what you get from teaching it or from the students in the class because of the material is the most joyful or brings you the most curious insights? No, I'd say it's whatever the last one is. I mean, (laughs) whatever the current one is. It's interesting when you teach at the very beginning of the MBA program. So sometimes I teach data and decisions and the orientation boot camp or even days at Haas. It's a very different experience from when you're teaching later in the program, later in the curriculum, Mm -hmm. teaching electives and so forth, because the students have grown up to some degree. And you have to be different. When when people are first come into the MBA program, it's not like the military where you have to tear people down. It's like more in the beginning, you're trying to get people comfortable with this new way of being. And so you have to be very encouraging. But later on, you can be much more... You can challenge the students much more aggressively and, and really because they, they know that, hey, they're part of this entity where we all trust one another and we're all part of the community. We all mean well for each other. So you can really push push students a little more later in the, in, in the curriculum. But I will say that what I like about some of the electives that I've been teaching over the years is that 
Unlike the core classes where you, it's entirely lecture, when you get later in the curriculum, you, then you can start to bring in former Haas students, you can bring in alums, you can bring in professionals and practitioners, and then you can design a, a, a curriculum which is where you can see immediately, hey, what you just learned is not abstract. It's right. This person here is like doing this right now, and and they can talk about it, and and so that when you get that elective level, you can do that. I, I find that to be. And that's very close to what we do in an executive education. So an executive education is typically like 50-50 mix of academic stuff and real hands-on practical stuff. This is my first semester being 100% in electives. And I agree. I think that's been the really insightful part is you learn the theory or learn the foundations in class. And in that same class, a couple hours down the line, you'll have someone come in and be like, this is how I use it every day, or Mm -hmm. this is how I applied it when I was in class real time at my job. And it just brings a whole nother level to learning and seeing those connections on like how you can do this tomorrow or Monday or first thing when you're in your own work, which is really neat. Do you have a class that you are in the works of creating or that you would like to see on the Haas electives list in the future? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not actually working <laughs> right now on, I'm teaching a, a, a future of work course in the summer, but I've, I've taught a course on the workplace for the last five or six years. So it's not a completely new thing, but you know, this year, obviously we're going to focus a lot more on remote work and what we know about remote work and the future of remote work and whether remote work is, you know, when things go back to normal and everybody's vaccinated, what will be left over from this radical experiment that we've all gone through? And I, and I believe that things will not go back to, to normal and nor should they go back to normal. I think what we'll wind up doing is what we should have been doing all along. You know, we've had these technologies for 20 years. I mean, I know people that still don't know how to use Google Calendar invite and it, it drives me absolutely nuts, right? Or if, if somebody doesn't know how to do a Zoom call or whatever. I mean, so now I don't think anybody has that excuse. And so when you're designing, look at it like an ebook, right? Or an audio book. So it frustrates the hell out of me when I, when I buy an audio book to listen in my car. And maybe it's a book about music and all they're doing is reading the book. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you're, if it's a book about music, it should have music in it, right? If I'm right. listening to it, don't describe the music, play the music, right? But what they're doing is they're taking a book that was written for this and they're mm-hmm. cutting and pasting it into an audio format and not changing anything. Or if you go to your Kindle and you see a PDF of, of a book, and you see this, you get the PDF of the, Haas, of the Harvard Business Review cases in mm-hmm. your Kindle. It's, you're not even rethinking the whole thing. So when it comes to education, we need to rethink education from top to bottom. We can't just take the 13th century stage in the stage, old man behind a stadium, behind a podium, and, and then just put a camera in front. Like you have to rethink this whole thing from beginning to end. And, and I think that what that means is that the stuff that we do in person has to be the stuff that we do in person and the stuff that we do remotely is the stuff that we can do remotely and, and have a division of labor and comparative advantage and, and rethink the whole process. Amazon, when they automate the warehousing system, they don't just have like a little robot that has arms and, and, and it kind of <laughs> goes and grabs something off the shelf. No, they have Kiva robots, right, which don't look anything like humans. They rethought the entire process from beginning to end. And that's hopefully what I think we're going to do now that we have all of these tools that we didn't have. And so the the in-person experience is going to be that much more precious and that much more valued and that much more useful 
because a lot of the stuff that we do in person is just a waste of time. I mean, meetings and, yep. you know, let's just get rid of it all. We, we don't need it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess along that same line, we're lapping a whole year in doing remote classes and for you teaching remote, we've received a bunch of emails about how class will be in person this fall. So as you think about the fall classroom, what have you learned or what are you taking from how you taught over the last year and bringing that to life when we transition back on campus? Well, that's a good question because, you know, we're, I think when we go back, we're expected to resume life as, as normal. I don't think that the school has any intention just yet to reconfigure things. That said, I certainly think that I, I expect to, to interact with more students than I have in the past because in the past, students were like, oh, I'll come and meet you in your office. Mm-hmm. So, well, A, I'm never in my office, and B, you're never in Berkeley. So right. for some professors, it's, this is great. I don't have to meet with any student right. ever. Like, they'll never <laughs> find me, and I'll never find them. But for me, it's like I actually I really enjoy and respect the students. So I think people are more like, yeah, let's just do a Zoom call, Right. I mean, obviously it's better to be talking in person, but if it's a talking in person or nothing, we usually wind up with nothing. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's a way of making yourself more available. I certainly think we'll, we'll do more, more of that. And then certain classes hopefully will be you know, switched to a hybrid model. But again, that's, that's something that's going to take some, take some time. And I guess to your point, no one has an excuse to say they don't know how to use FaceTime or Zoom or Hangouts, whatever your video meeting of choice is, because we've all been doing it for the last year. And so it does just make those human interactions, whether virtual or in person, a little bit smoother and a little bit more authentic now that we've been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, selfishly, what do you think is the biggest mistake that MBA students make in the program? Oh, biggest. Jeez. So I have to pick among all the mistakes to find out which one's the biggest? <laughs> top top three. Okay, so number one, uh, a lot of MBAs come in thinking about grades. Okay. Mm. Come on, really? Grades? <laughs> what are we, in high, high school? I mean, you shouldn't be worrying about grades. You should be worrying about knowledge. Don't let school getting the way education, as they say, right? So that that's number one. I think it's more the full-time MBAs that, that, that kind of fall in that trap. The executive MBAs, they, they, they don't care for the most part. So that's number one. I think number two is to underestimate the value of your colleagues, right? Mm. So a lot of MBA students view the MBA program as, as a solitary pursuit. It's not a solitary pursuit, right? You do everything in, in groups for a reason, We've engineered the process so that you you have to do things in in groups. You learn so much more when you're bouncing ideas off of people and you're mm-hmm. you're teaching people and you're learning learning from others. And so I've seen this happen where study groups just fall apart because schedules get in the way and people are like, well, I can't meet. Let's doodle. Oh, well, I can't meet. I got busy and you're busy and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. And then they don't meet. And it's like, why would you pay seventy thousand dollars to just go to a lecture. I mean, you can go to Coursera for free. I mean, the whole point is right. that you're, you're coming to the school to interact with others and, and learn from others. I like to say diamonds sharpen diamonds. And if you don't interact with the other diamonds, then you're just going to be a dull diamond, right? So, I mean, you'll still be a diamond. Right? You're still good, but, <laughs> but you're not quite as sharp. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I would say that's a concern. And then, you know, number three is, and this is, I mean, all of these apply to life as well as school, is that don't be afraid to be wrong, 
if your ego is so brittle that you can't like stand a little bit of disputation and discussion and whatever, then you really don't belong in the business school because you're not going to learn anything. So being comfortable with, and this it's related to the second point, right? Because the more you spend time right. talking to other people, the more comfortable you become with, with disagreement and with resolution and with conversation and with persuasion and being persuaded and, and realizing that this is a good thing. It's an amazing process when two people go into a room with, with different priors and then they leave with a, a communal understanding it's a beautiful thing. It's how communities are built. And if you're in fight or flight mode or if you have your defenses up, then you'll learn nothing, you'll teach nothing, and you might as well just go back in your, into your basement and, and watch Netflix, right? Like, why bother going to school? So, so I think that's, that's one little thing that, and, you know, we as a school have to do a, a better job of helping people through that journey, and it's difficult. I mean, the media is just in the business of you know, provoking fear and anxiety. But if you're in a sense of stress, if you're in a state of um, anxiety, if you're in a state of fear, it's very difficult to forge community and it's very difficult to learn and it's very difficult to have conversations. So I think we as a business school also have to help people with emotional self-management and stuff like that. There's no course on that, right? I mean, you don't say, well, I'm taking finance, accounting, marketing, and emotional self-management, right? But, <laughs> but, but that's probably more important than than the other the other topics. We just assume you're going to learn it through osmosis, but it's really up to the student and it's up to the, the co-curricular student-run part of the educational process to uh, to learn, you know, how to think, how to discuss. And in my workplace class, I, I talk about different types of attention, whether it's mindfulness or flow or, or brainstorming or counterfactual reasoning. And being able to like dial in and out of those different kind of attentional states, depending on the circumstances, are you, you, you going to be creative? Well, if you're going to be creative, then you got to have this focus. If you're going to be, you know, collaborative, then you got to have this focus. If you're going to do deep work, then you got to have this focus. And no one at school teaches you that. You got to buy some kind of, you know, self-help book to learn how to do that. But but I think we mm -hmm. should probably think seriously about incorporating that into into the curriculum. I think that's something that I do appreciate about my OSCE cohort, even though we only had a semester in change in person, was that the culture we created was one of, hey, we're here all together. We were a smaller cohort size, so it was very easy to have like cohesion amongst the cohort and this feeling of family. And so when it came to the classroom and like that psychological safety, mm -hmm. I feel like myself and others I talked to, we were all just so much more willing to fail in the classroom, to ask questions, to be like, I have no idea what's going on or to turn to each other and really enable that collaboration because you're right, if you're in a state where you're just constantly thinking inwardly and not ever looking up and looking around and being like, oh, this is good, like I can learn, I can have that cognitive flexibility, you're not gonna get as much out of the actual technical skills and being able to apply them to real world situations. Yeah, and I think psychological safety is key, right? So if, if a family member comes up to you and says, Paulina, you got a piece of parsley on your tooth, right? You don't, you don't react like, hey, 
well, who the hell are you? <laughs> You're like, really? <laughs> and then you look in the mirror and you take it off. And I think that mm-hmm. Haas is a community. It, it really is a community. It's, it is like a family. I mean, that's that's why you pay $150,000 is because you're paying for this community of people who have your back. They have your back. They're going to stick up for you. You can lean on them when you need something. Going forward, I mean, if you just zap somebody, some email to someone out of the blue and say, hey, I need some help with whatever. I mean, Silicon Valley is probably the, one of the friendlier places on earth in many ways with pay it forward and so forth. But still, if they're not a Berkeley person, they'll probably be like, yeah, I'm busy. But if they're a Berkeley person, I mean, they, they stop what they're doing. They respond to you. They help you. I have never had a situation where I emailed one Haas person and I said, I do this all the time. I mean, yesterday I just did a couple of times. Hey, there's a Haas person over here who's looking to switch jobs and wants to get into this field. And, and you're, you've been in this field. And I know you because you graduated 10 years before this. But, but can you talk to him? Mm-hmm. I have never gotten a no. No right. one's ever said no. Okay? And if I ask a Hasi, hey, you want to come and speak in my class? It's no one says no. But if you ask somebody else, they, they might say no. And so that's what it means to be part of this community, which has, there's half a million Berkeley alums in, in the world. And then you've got whatever, I don't know, 50,000 Haas alums. It's a unique environment because it's not the same with alums from other schools where they're a little more out for themselves. It's, it's really, it's really a great community. I agree. And I'm curious too, what is the culture like amongst faculty at Haas? <laughs> well, it's, it, it could be improved. When I was growing up as a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, it must be so awesome to be a professor because you're just around all these people and you're, you know, you're talking about stuff all the time. And then you have like your dinner parties and you go to the faculty lounge and you hang out and you talk about stuff. It's not like that. I mean, people are very busy and people are very immersed in their work and it's not as collegial as it needs to be. I mean, it's definitely better to be a student than a faculty member <laughs> in terms of collegiality. And, and, you know, there's a lot of work we have to do, I think, on the, on the, wor- in the workplace. I'm, I've been in the leadership team of the professional faculty for, for many years and the professional faculty are, are people that have one foot outside of the university and one foot inside the university. And, and their, their relationship with their students is much stronger than their relationship with their fellow fellow faculty members. So I think there's I think there's definitely work to be done there. In some of the teaching that I do and you know speaking that I do, I, I have this riff that I do about how everyone's a customer. It used to be mm-hmm. in the value chain. You remember the value chain from strategy, right? Where you have the raw materials, and then you have the the, the finance, and then you have the labor, and then you have the component assembly, and then you have the, the R and D, and then you have your marketing and your distribution, blah blah blah. And that translates into your income statement where your top line revenue is what comes from your you know customers and then everything else is like a cost center your sgna and your cogs and all and your taxes and your interest and blah 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 okay and if you think like that today you're toast right you're done you can't operate like that you have to view every single contributor as a customer right you have to think of your suppliers as customers. You have to think about, well, like your independent software developers as customers. You have to think about your complementers as customers. You have to think about your bondholders and your buyers and your shareholders and your, you know, are, as customers. And particularly, you have to think about your em- employees as customers because every single day they're making a decision. Are they going to buy what you're selling? Are they going to show up mm-hmm. for work in the morning and buy what you're selling? They're going to buy what you're selling with their labor, just like a customer buys what you're selling with their cash. And if you're not constantly thinking about them as customers, then they will attrit. 
And so customer lifetime value, CAC, you have to think about employee lifetime value and employment acquisition cost. And and so a lot of companies have figured this out and they, they've taken their marketing people and moved them over to HR. I don't think the universities were, were quite there yet, right? I mean, students are customers, alums are customers, mm-hmm. recruiters are customers, faculty are customers, staff are customers, right? The state of California is a customer, right? The consumers right. of our research are customers. But we don't think like that. We don't have a, a marketing mindset for all of those different pieces that go into the, the, we're still very much of a traditional business model. And I think that's going to have to change. And so when we talk about digital transformation, a lot of that's really software, data, APIs, et cetera. But it also is this different mindset where you're a platform where all these different entities come together and interact and when it's an ecosystem. And I think we're going to have to rethink that within the university. And I think it'll be positive when we do. I was listening this morning to a couple podcasts that were talking about more so focused on community colleges, right, as that bridge between a lot of high schools, potentially high school seniors go to community college before transitioning to full undergrad institutions and the ones who have really suffered greatly during the pandemic because they didn't adapt Mm -hmm. and the ones who have actually kept revenues up and kept attrition down low and seen their students come back and at least plan to come back in fall because of the changes they made in real time. So you're 100% right. Like we're going to have to see changes across the education system once they remember that they too are a business that needs to evolve for each one of its customers. Well, one of the companies that I'm working with is a company called Quasar, and it's software engineering education. And they've mm. come up with a project-based peer learning approach to software engineering education. And it's a very compelling vision because in the future, we're going to need 10 million software engineers, like in this country in the next five years or whatever. I don't know. I mean, you go to a country like Nigeria, it's got 200 million people. Well, they're going to need like 10 million software engineers, right? Like, where are they going to mm-hmm. come from? And they're not going to come from Abuja University. You're not going to have 10 million people going through there. You can't do it. I mean, it's not feasible. Right. You can't scale. So there's going to be new ways for people to learn that are, that are going to be cheaper, more scalable, and more individualized and customized. And so I'm happy that this, this company has actually just signed its first deal with a community college to supply them with the learning capabilities so they can offer scaled training in software engineering without having to hire. I mean, who, how are you going to hire, what, 100 instructors like for a community college to teach software engineering? I mean, if you can teach software engineering, like you're going to be working at Facebook. Like it's, it's right. just, it's impossible. So I think we're going to have to see these, these radical changes and it has to be accessible. It can't be MIT, Harvard. I mean, it has to be like everybody. It has to be inclusive. It has to be available for people that, that aren't part of this this little tiny elite group of people that we're lucky enough to be a part of. Well, as we look to close out our interview, wanted to ask a couple questions about who you are outside the classroom. So I know our class always appreciated that we were your afternoon class. So you had already taught acts in the morning for four hours. And then you came back and did the whole thing over again. And you always had such great energy that kept us going from two to six. So any secrets for keeping your energy so high after eight hours of teaching? I'm like a vampire squid. I feed off the energy <laughs> of the students, right? So as soon as as soon as it gets boring, then you know that's when I'll stop. As long as it's it's continually a learning experience for me. But again, it's I don't think of being in class as one thing and being outside of class another thing. I think that 
for many of us, the extent to which the work is a manifestation of our life, to the extent that we look at what we do and we see it as an extension of, of who we are. I know people outside of the U.S., they make fun of us because they're just like, hey, it's 5 p.m., you should just flip a switch and become a different person. And Americans are like, no, well, what's, this is who we are. I'm like that. I think that class is not, I mean, yes, I play this character, right? I mean, when I'm teaching, I, I inhabit this character who's not always the nicest person on this. He's got a <laughs> sort of a different mental way of being. But still, it has, you have to be, it has to be interesting to you. Otherwise, your students can pick up on it. And so if anytime you get in there and you're not really sincere and authentic and, I mean, authentically passionate, then students right. will pick up on it. Very true. And then when you're not reading books all night or podcasting or teaching or consulting, what do you like to do? I know you're a big cook, right? Yes. I, hey, I have, I've only eaten out once during the pandemic, I think. Mm. Went to French Laundry. I did not see Gavin Newsom, but you know, <laughs> I got a table there, which I've never been able to get. So I cook a lot. I just got back from spring break. So I spent a week uh, in Tahoe, backcountry skiing, which is a lot of fun. I love to ride horses, do a lot of that. And I've been working on my house. I bought a fixer-upper off the granddaughter of the guy who built it 100 years old wow. so it's keeping me busy but hey if you got a new hobby or something send it my way because i'm always looking for new always looking for <laughs> new things to learn well you got to join your other guy the beginner what is it beginnings that he, he wrote the book you got to come out and go surfing you're right by the ocean <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, we'll see about that there's limits to my uh, curiosity i'm not sure about that one Okay, fine. Well, we're in that time of year when a lot of students are finding out if they got accepted to Haas. So I've been asking a lot of my guests, what is your advice for people considering to come to Haas or for those who are about to start at Haas this fall? Well, I mean, come to Haas, right? No. Well, I, look, I don't think the business school is right for everybody. And I don't think Haas is right for everybody. And part of what the beauty of Haas is that we do a good job of trying to match the people who, who fit with the, the culture. And so it's like progressive. I sometimes discuss this case in my class where they, they advertise the uh, prices of their uh, competitors. And sometimes their competitors mm -hmm. were cheaper. And so they would be sucking in some customers and pushing other customers away. And so we, we should not be telling people why you ought to come to Haas. We ought to be telling them why you shouldn't come to Haas mm. so that we continue to attract the people that, that work best for us. I would also say that business school... Even though I'm a big fan of business school and anybody who's like going into pretty much any occupation, I'm like, yeah, business school can help you. Timing is, timing is critical. There was someone who was applying for business school. I, I met at a Days at Haas event a couple of years back and she uh, told me what she was doing. And she was like, I'm working at this startup and I knew the startup and I knew the founder and I knew, it, I knew what it was all about and I knew where it was in the development process. And she was like, well, should I go to Haas? Should I go to Haas? And I was like, no, like... You shouldn't go this year because you're you're on a rocket ship right now, and and this is not the right time. Come back in a couple of years, maybe do the executive right because you have a tremendous opportunity in front of you. And so I think that timing is really critical, and you should not go too early, and you shouldn't go too late, and you should slot it into your life where it where it fits best. But yeah, Haas is Haas is special. We should we shouldn't share the secret. We got to keep it keep it for the <laughs> for the cool kids only, right? Well, thank you so much for take two of our interview. I appreciate you coming back on the show again. Well, thank you, Paulina. It's great to see you. 
Great to see you too. And thanks for tuning in to Here at Haas. Know a Haasie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. This is Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas.